Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast, brought to you by Stam Audio. Stam Audio creates zero compromise recording gear that is light on the wallet. Only the best components are used, and each one goes through a rigorous testing process with one thing in mind, getting the best sound possible. Go to stamaudio.com for more info. And now your hosts, Joey Sturges, Joel Wanasek, and A.L. Levy. Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. I am A.L. Levy. With me is co-host, Mr. Joel Wanasek. And Hello. hello. We have a uh, very special guest. This is his second time on the podcast. One of our favorite people to speak with. I've gone on his podcast before, so has our not-with-us dearly departed but still alive uh <laughs> co-host joey sturgis <laughs> has also been on his uh podcast he's an author entrepreneur engineer smart cool person mr jesse cannon if you don't know who he is you should know who he is whether you are a client of his at cannon found foundation studios in uh new york well, New Jersey, Brooklyn. Yeah, right outside. Right outside. You can record with him, or he does primarily mastering. Very, very great mastering engineer. He actually taught a course on it for Creative Live. He's worked with bands all the way from The Cure to Animal Collective to The Misfits, Limp Biscuit. So, I mean, Dillinger Escape Plan. His range of engineering experience goes all the way from the nastiest cool stuff to i would say the glossiest major label stuff he's got a podcast called off the record and uh that one is kind of about music industry business stuff and tech behind it all and then another one which is honestly you know i'm very biased i think urm podcast is a great audio podcast but if i had to say which one i thought was Another fantastic podcast that I love is called Noise Creators Podcast, which Joey and I have gone on. And that's where, uh, kind of similar to URM, he talks to producers and other music creators. He's been a manager for bands such as Man Overboard and Transit. He's an author. Uh, His first book, which is, what, like 700 pages long, Mm -hmm. is called Get More Fans, The DIY Guide to the New Music Business. And uh, one thing that's really cool about that book is that when you think of music industry books, at least me, I think of books that are very outdated, like they talk about the old record label structures and the old way of doing things. But Jesse's book is... I would say a college level book about the way things are done in the new era. And he's uh, updated it many, many times. So it remains current. And we have him on because he wrote another book called Processing Creativity, uh, which is brand new. And it is exactly what the title says. I've read it, and Joel has read it too. It's a fascinating book. It's about how to actually turn creativity into something that you can summon at will and introduce into your workflow as a regular part of your life, rather, you know, so so that you own it rather than it owning you. 
I guess. Uh, maybe that's a, a dumb way to put it, but what would you say it's about, Jesse? I, I like that, um, actually. It is about getting control of the creative process. And now that you've said that, I, I feel like, like I have a little bit more grasp on how to say it. I think there's just, like, so many pitfalls. Like, obviously... Everybody thinks like, oh, I wrote a great song, but it's like, man, the we all know, and I've heard you guys discuss it, it's like the pitfalls that go along the way are way, way, way more likely to mess you up that of like, even just like the, you know, I was like listening to your uh, episode with Jay Moss this week, and it's like talking about the guitarist, the fight of like, should the best guitarist play the guitars on that record and things like that in the ego wars. And what I tried to do is just figure out everything that's gotten in the way of a good record. And like, I took notes for four years. So every time I saw a band making a bad mistake, I'm like, this is what it is. Every time I heard a podcast like yours, and I was like, oh yeah, I should discuss that. And I just wrote it down and found what I had that was interesting to say on the subject. And I want to key in on the fact that you said that this took years because it's not just something you threw together in a night. I mean, this is very well researched. I appreciate that. Yeah, you're pulling in you're pulling in examples across the entire musical spectrum and ideas across the entire musical spectrum. I think uh, it's very, very thorough. Definitely. I, I have that thing of, um, I'm sure you guys have this with books too, and it's, um, you know, there's like a, this big trend of like, write a book in 30 days these days. And it's like 90% of books should be a 28-page article, maybe at best. <laughs> Probably not th that. Just like we try to make the records we're going to revisit every, all over and over again, I try to make a book that people are going to want to read countless times and revisit at different points in their life, even if they don't find one part interesting to go back at a different stage of their life and like think about this again as they mature and stuff with a lot, a lot, a lot of depth. Because, I mean, dude, I had to read 200 books and most of them like... I literally wanted to just cross out and throw away. Like, why did you waste seven hours of my life with somebody I could have learned in an hour? <laughs> <laughs> you read 200 books researching this? I read like 200 some odd books, um, tons of research papers. I was really lucky that when I started, I was dating a neuroscientist with a uh, past login for all these uh, academic studies. I mean, I must have watched tons of documentaries. And then like, also, you know, I've been... I mean, I, you guys, I'm sure, did this too. Is like you have like the preparation sheet for like before the band comes in. It's like I've been kind of always adding to that thing, and like mine got to like 45 pages at one point, and like no band was reading it. So I like was like, all right, this is ridiculous. But I'm like, what <laughs> if I made this something else? And like I had that idea. Like there's actually, I say I wrote this for four years, but there's literally blog posts I had on my old blog, Muse Formation. Um, there's sections of this book that were taken from that that are seven to eight years old. So long time in coming, and why yes. why this topic? And by the way, before you answer that, let me say that I think this is a great topic because there was a time period in my life, I think, when I was actively writing music all the time where mm -hmm. I tried researching this topic a lot. Like, I would, this resonates for me because I wanted to know what uh, what did Einstein and Mozart have in common, for, for mm. instance? Like, where did those that spark come from that, like, what makes those great people create? Like, how do they just do it all the time? And so seeing that you did this, for me, it's something that I've personally been very interested in. But why? 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 Uh, 
So when I finished Get More Fans, I chopped out 300 pages, and a lot of that was on, like, songwriting and objectivity and things like so that. So Get More Fans was 1,000 pages long? When I when I first wrote it, it was 1,200. Then Ooh, I got rid of 200. Damn. I mean, if you think of it this way, this book is 260, and I had 575 when the first draft was done, and then I, like, I always overwrite. The other thing about, like, the way I write is, like, I just... I've learned this thing, like, it's just like what you do with music. It's like, when you have an idea and it's trying to get out of your head, it's like, get it down in every detail, because everything you don't get out is n probably not going to come back unless you're really, really lucky. So I overwrite, and then I trim and trim and trim. I mean, I, I think I did probably six months of the process was just trimming it and getting the best sentences. Because I'd say the same thing over and trying to get the best way to say it, the most clear way. Like, that was a lot of the time. And probably the most intense work I was doing of, like, when I really, like, I was like, I can't take production gigs anymore. I mean, I stopped dating for a while, which is insane for someone like me. I killed my that. social life. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're a dedicated person. <laughs> and uh, it's like that thing of, like, I really needed to go in, but the way I got here was, uh, so I trimmed those 300 books and I thought I was going to write like a book on meta production and like lifestyle stuff. And then as I researched the creativity stuff, I was like, I found myself more interested in it. And I was like realizing, I'm like, man, like half the time I'm listening to people talk about these things, they don't know most of the stuff in here. Like, there's, you know, we've all heard the discussion of like, why do I have all my good ideas at at night? It's like, well, there's actually reasons for that, and like, let's get into how you can get better at that too, and like, let's give concrete things because I never hear anybody say that, and I just kept finding like, wow, like, so also a lot of this book was like a uh, exercise in staying passionate about this. Like, obviously, I'm on year 19 of doing this full time, and. Uh, you know, I can't say that every day is, like, as challenging, but ever since I researched this book, I'm, like, I'm in a whole new world where it's, like, all fresh and new to me, and I'm so excited again. And part of that was going deeper, and, like, we know as nerds, the three of us, like, that's what you got to do all the time is, like, find the new thing, find the new challenge, and go deeper, and this was my way of doing that. Well, one thing that got me right away mm -hmm. was in the first few pages— you talked about a no BS approach mm. to creativity. It's one of the headings. And you kind of referenced how in other books, they will evoke a spiritual or metaphysical or kind of quote unquote bullshit yeah. <laughs> approach to when they're referencing <laughs> creativity. And I really like that because I've never seen it like that. However, I, I do think that like I've thought about it like the light bulb comes on and the light mm. bulb comes off and I understand sure. I understand why sometimes creative people will say that like it was downloaded to them from a higher power because it mm -hmm. feels like that but I've never thought that it's actually coming from there I've thought that that it's you're just waking your brain up so could you talk us through some of that nitty-gritty science that bolsters your case for process yes. and creativity so what that kind of was, was um, you guys know the book War of Art. It's the highest, bi biggest selling creativity book. I read that and I was like, wow, this book sucks. It has a great point. The, res <laughs> the resistance idea is an amazing idea and it's an amazing way of putting that into words. But it is like an 18 point font where half the pages are blank. And he talks about all this stuff that's just like rambling on and on about things that aren't there. And I'm like, I'm like a science geek and like, 
you know, it's like that thing, like nothing thrills me more than reading psychology and science. And so, you know, there's a lot of subjects in the book, but like a lot of the, I mean, I think the biggest thing people miss and like, I'm, I know you guys, I mean, I watch you guys say it to people in forums all day. It's like, you know, there's an emotional aspect to this that so many people miss. They're trying to make their records loud, technically right on the grid, uh, you know, perfectly this, this and that. And it's like, it's not what it is. It's like, it's an emotional expression and learning how, what, and not leave it, you know, the other side of it is, is like those white stripes worshiping Jack White masturbators who like, I'm going to leave all the mistakes and it's going to be so fucking cool, dude. Like, you know, I live in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, like I walk among them and like, so there's like these two sides to it. And what both those sides miss is kind of like the thing that like the mistakes that actually work and the looseness that works is like because it works emotionally and so much of that. And then so there's like this um, scientist, Daniel Levitin, he wrote this book called uh, This Is Your Brain on Music, which is a fantastic book. And so he was a record producer. He produced uh, like Blue Oyster Cult and like all these crazy 70s bands. And then he decided to become a neuroscientist. So a lot of his stuff is just about how flaws left in and or quote unquote flaws in the humanness and music is actually what makes people respond to it. So I got into a lot of that and then I got into just a lot of um, there's a great doctor named Dr. Keesler. So hilariously, one of the things I point out in the book is like creativity was never a word in the New York Times till 1950. So we've only been discussing it really in the main lexicon for 60 some odd years. And Keith Sawyer is one of, really wrote the only textbook on creativity. And so when you go through that, you learn, like, there's a reason, like, every one of these things that we have happen in the studio, there's usually a reason behind it that science has studied. And I wanted to get into that and make it fun language, because obviously we're musicians and we don't want to read this. I recognize it's really fucking boring. So I wanted to put fun language to all of that. So before uh, the word creativity was used... What did they use, or was it? Is that where the metaphysical kind of language comes from prior to the word creativity? Are you, you guys are familiar with uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, or should I explain that to the Absolutely. audience? Absolutely, yeah. Yes. So, yeah, yeah. So, you guys know. So, the, for the audience, it's like this thing that you're in a survival mode, and then after you get the add to that, you can get to actualization. So, actualization is being able to do creative things. So, if you think of it this way. Up to 1950, most people weren't able to actually, like, sure, they might paint, but, like, creativity was really a small part of their lives. And people would use the word innovation, but they just didn't know how to discuss creativity. Like, you know, um, the concept I really like that to explain this is, like, when the three of us were younger, we'd have a fear of missing out, but no one ever said that term fear of missing out when we were teenagers. Now that's one of the most popular words in the English lexicon and one of the most Google words around. I think it was all... And it's very real, too. Yeah, yeah. And, like, it's... But we didn't have the way of explaining it. They just... Mm -hmm. We're still getting really good at discussing creativity. And, like, when I looked at... um, I did an exercise of, like, I looked at all the creativity books and I looked at what their copyright year is. And it's, like, insane how many more are coming out now. Because, like, we're getting good at saying it. And it's, like, literally, like, the first book even published on it, it was 1928 that said it. And it's, like, it wasn't a book that sold. Interesting. Mm -hmm. So, I guess it seems... Very, uh, very timely for you to be throwing your two cents in to the pot. I didn't realize that it's such a modern concept. Yeah, and like, there, and the other th- crazy thing is like, there's like when I was like, oh, there's no book on this subject. Like, there's one that's like close, which is um, Michael Banhorn, who is one of my favorite producers ever. 
Um, he wrote a book called Unlocking Creativity that like gets into music, but it doesn't do what I do. It's like more like um, just some long meditative essays on it, and like he gets into cool things like how he got the 16-inch two-track machine made for Ozzy Osbourne, No Rest for the Wicked, and things like that. But it's not like the same thing. Like he doesn't go through the whole process and try to detail every aspect of it. So I just really felt like like this is this is what will advance the conversation. And like I think that's always something I'm like. I like I'm a big political nerd and I hate listening to all the people who say boring things about politics. I want to find the people who say interesting things that get your brain to understand it more and it's the same for this. Makes sense. So and now you talk about seven myths about creativity, such as mm-hmm. like a myth that creativity is inherited mm-hmm. or those with higher IQs are more creative and and again, I'll tell you my opinion before mm-hmm. you tell me yours. Uh, how important is it in your opinion to dispel these myths? in order to basically fulfill your potential. And I'll, I'll, my opinion is that when I've been at my most creative, I'm not thinking about any creative ideas or about the theory of creativity or anything. Mm-hmm. I'm just in the moment. Yeah, well, that's so that's the flow state. And that's what we're all trying to get into when we perspire as opposed to getting inspired. The me- reason I have that myth thing in there is much more that, like, man, you like you talk to so many people, like, even one of the girls who uh, edited the book, it's like she doesn't feel like she's a creative person because she always heard, like, oh, you have to have, like, this high IQ or, oh, your parents did it. And, like, yeah, I know, like, your dad is, is like, highly in music. My father was a music manager. But, like, what we really find when, like, people actually do scientific studies is, like, well, yeah, those creative people let their kids be more creative and they value that higher because they do it with their lives. Whereas, like, we all hear the story of, like, the pe- people uh, that their parents wouldn't let them work on music and stuff. And, you know, some of them make up for it later on. I mean, actually, a lot of people make up for it later on. But, like, all these myths that make for good articles and clickbait stories aren't actually like the totally real case. It's like there's really logical reasons for all this. I, I would agree with you. I think that's a good topic if we don't mind digging in a yeah. little bit more. Um, because let's take this into something practical because we mentioned, talked about flow state. And there's a good book on this that you talk about in your book, which is uh, Flow. Yes. I forgot who the author is. It's, the, mo- it's the most impossible name to say out loud. So uh, let's just yeah. let's just do this. Mihalali Krizzle is some. Holly, it's insane. Some d- guy, yeah, just <laughs> he, look, he looks MC. like a wizard. We'll call him MC. <laughs> yes, yes. So MC Hammer writes a book <laughs> called Flow. <laughs> Can't touch that. <laughs> Ooh, that was good. Yeah, that, dude, was, good. that was definitely um, a zing. Right. Let's apply this to some of the listeners because you know we're talking about all this great stuff, but I feel like we should give them something uh, practical. So you know, getting into that creative state in the zone is something that's very, very important. You know, I mean, picture it. Yeah, um, you guys ever do like heavy songwriting or anything like mm-hmm, that? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, like band shows up at your studio at eight in the morning and like they're like write me a song and they sit there and stare at you and you just drive the computer and then all of a sudden you look up at the end of the day and you've got a song and everybody's like in agreement. Mm-hmm. Um, you know that like level of focus, just complete, absolute, you know, nothing else matters except what you're doing mm-hmm. and you're just at absolute peak performance. What kind of things and strategies can people do, you know, working in the studio like producers and et cetera, to get into that and to maximize that and to basically make that more of a part of their actual workflow? Like, you know, like so we would say, turn it on. Uh, so the first thing, and I say this as somebody who this book, like, really changed who I am. I was one of those people I could barely watch my favorite TV shows without looking at my phone the whole time. Get rid of the fucking phone. Turn off the fucking notifications. 
Especially <laughs> turn off the fucking notifications. You don't need to see that da 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 PayPal you to buy the compressor while you're being creative. Like, it can wait till the end of the day. The other thing, uh, clear your head of things. And But there's also a big thing with closed states. So, like, I know a lot of people who are in your arm academy are, like, at the beginning of learning. Um, proficiency. So, there's a actually a really interesting thing. Uh, the book came out right as mine did, um, and I, but I read it. It's called uh, Stealing Fire by Stephen Kotler. And they talk about that there's this ingredient to flow where you're pushing 5 to 10% past your ability. And that's one of the things that keeps you sustained is that you're just interested enough that you're challenging yourself, but you're not going so far. You're not somebody who only knows how to play Green Day trying to then play a Mastodon riff. You're doing something a little bit past your abilities. And then, like, the last thing, too, is, like, you have to train your brain to be able to have an attention span. Like, everybody self-diagnoses themselves as, as having ADD. And so much of what we forget about creativity is it's the exact same thing as exercise. And I say this as a not gym-going type of guy. Like, you know, I exercise, but I try to see how long I can hold my attention in things. I try to push past and, like, figure out how I can get better with... Every single part of uh, creativity is like, whether it's the ego depletion, like, I think one of the biggest things, too, is like, how many things can you keep your attention on? Like, there, I mean, you guys, I'm sure, have produced records for people who, like, they only can write three good songs in a three-month period, and then they try to write nine for an LP in a three-month period, and six of them just suck because they don't have enough tension span or proficiency to have that many ideas to expel. You have to train yourself to get better at those things and push past what you're normally used to. And I think that there's something else in addition to everything that you've said uh, that has that I think is hugely important, mm -hmm. which is learning to recognize when it's when the moment's about to happen. Because mm. there's a very big difference between what you'll write when you're in flow state and when you're not in flow state. Uh -huh. And uh, it's, uh, it's, I mean, the difference in the quality of what I've written musically or any type of creative thing, but let's just stick to music. The difference is like the best songs I've ever written with the coolest riffs that people who like my music like the best and that are like still cool years later um, and that just move the audiences the most were always in a flow state. Mm -hmm. And the songs that made me insane tend to always be not in a flow state. And, <laughs> and a flow state, it doesn't just show up, right? Like you need to coax it. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I learned how to do is I would use technical practice to coax it, meaning about if I would if I wasn't feeling it that day or whatnot, I would just start practicing guitar, like just doing exercises and try to learn something new, even if it's a, a new song or a new exercise, a new picking pattern. And I would work on it and force my brain to get that new idea until my ADD would kick in and I'd be warmed up from the new idea and I'd just start coming up with a riff without even thinking about it. That's when the light bulb is turning on. Like you mm -hmm. have to realize when you're going off. For me, it's when I was going off track, but like I was feeling good about it. So I'd like go off track and like play something badass over and over and over and not be on the exercise anymore. And then it's like, okay, 
that's the that's right there that's that spark it's starting mm-hmm. fucking hit record and go like now you yeah. begin writing the song and once i finally realized that that was typically nine out of ten times that's how it came about for me i mean some days you just sit down and the first thing you do is fucking cool but that's the minority of the time so i learned to realize when flow state is how for how to summon it and how to recognize when it's about to be there and then capitalize right away pounce Mm -hmm. be ready ready to do it and i think that a lot of people for instance like say they decide they want to practice guitar Mm-hmm. They'll sit there and they'll practice, and instead of uh, instead of stopping practice once flow kicks in, they'll just make themselves go back to the exercise. And then when they're done with their practice, then they'll move on to the songwriting part of their schedule or whatnot. Yeah, I've seen, and that's and and then not really necessarily come out with great results. So you need to understand why you're practicing guitar and uh, what the point is. For me, it was always to facilitate better writing. So the moment that the writing muscle kicked in or the light bulb turned on, I would stop the practice because that's what I was trying to trying to get to happen anyways. So self-awareness, huge. Yes. Got to know when you're in the mood. Something that always really helped me achieve that kind of flow state was having some sort of like external stimuli or a challenge, right? So somebody comes in and says, we need to do this. And you're like, well, crap, I don't know how to do that, but they're paying me. So you know what? Um, I better figure it out real quick and pretend and to make it look like I actually know what I'm doing. And having that like pressure, like it's go time, you know, you're, for example, you're on camera giving a a live thing or you're, um, you know, you're sitting here doing a podcast or you're in the studio and writing with the artist you know, having that certain external pressure and like, you know, it really makes you hyper focus. And that, and I think it's just really sitting down and doing it. A lot of us like to procrastinate on things that are tasks that we can flow on. Mm -hmm. I feel like, so we'll be like, all right, well, I got to write this song for the album. And you're like, well, it hasn't hit me. It hasn't hit me yet. And then it's always the time when you sit down, you're like, all right, let's get this done. Damn it. And like, you, you get stoked, you sit down and like, boom, there it is, at least in my experience. So I think that's, um, those are some good practical things that can be helpful. And there, there's science behind this. Like, it's the same thing of, like, how, you know, everybody's like, well, why is the band play so good live? And then they don't sound as good at practice. It's like, there's this thing that kicks in of survival mode that, like, puts you into a better thing. And the same thing of, like, the fear of embarrassment can really kick you into gear. And, like, they show this time and time again that, like, there is a bad side. Like, you're the type of person, and I think all three of us are, that, like, when the band's sitting there, it's a motivator. But some people, they have so much self-doubt, it makes them collapse. And that's the people who usually leave what we do real fast. Yeah, um, you can't let that doubt get to you. Or, if uh, you don't like people sitting there looking at you, you just got to tell them. Yeah. <laughs> there, there, there is that, too. <laughs> Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't mix with people in the room ever. Like, I, it's just not happening. Yeah, I mean, I feel like that's fair enough. I've been hired to do things before where I've had to write for people and had people like kind of staring at the back of my head and micromanaging me the whole time. And and sometimes I've been okay with it, and then sometimes I just kind of felt like I was putting on a show for them, <laughs> and because like I didn't realize I was doing it, but. A few hours in, I realized I was just kind of... And I wasn't really writing. I was just trying to impress them. Mm. And then I kicked them out so I could write. (laughs) So um, so on the topic of flow state uh, and all the different 
ingredients that you talk about for achieving the flow state, um, one of those ingredients is proficiency. Yes. Or not being obstructed via lack of proficiency. And bearing that in mind, and that not many people in this day and age have as much time to harness their craft, I guess, you know, they have real lives, like, and jobs and things like that. They don't have, like, four hours to dedicate to guitar and then a bunch of hours to dedicate to songwriting and production. How do you feel about tools like Guitar Pro? Do they help or hinder? Yeah, I, I mean, Guitar Pro can help. I think that there, you know, so there's another thing I discuss in the book is, like, the two trajectories of musicians that are most common. Everybody's a grayscale of them. But, like, you have a theory-trained musician, and then you have, like, the punk kid who just screams with a lot of heart, but he doesn't realize, like, all his chords are out of key and things like that. And in time, like, uh, there's a really good thing about, like, how Yo-Yo Ma talks about how no one liked his music until he learned to express an emotion because he was always just thinking of, like, the Guitar Pro thing. And we all know... These guitarists that, like, it's like everything is perfect technically, but there's no emotion to it. And yes, like, in metal, we sometimes, like, get really into those people. But, like, the people who get really rewarded, I think, are the ones that there's also an emotion behind being able to shred. And so Guitar Pro could be really, really awesome, but both things... If you're struggling, like you just got to put in those hours to get flow states. And it's really is the thing, too, is that they show time and time again. It's like, yeah, like flow state is a more intermediate skill for creators um, than like it can't be totally unfamiliar or you're not going to get to them. And that's also why, like the thing you said that is also proven time and time again is that people talk about that, like their best music is made in flow states, like the best um, experiences. Like one of the reasons there's actually like a really good thing in that flow book of like about like. Everybody, like, when they look on the outside before they have children, they're like, oh, God, it's got to be so boring to sit around with that kid. And then they see that you go into this flow state when you're playing with them that actually gives you a really high-functioning experience. And the same thing happens with songwriting. They show that it's literally, like, the same brainwave state as, like, that and, like, monks meditating. Interesting. Uh, Very interesting. Joel, can you talk about flow Yeah, you're state the expert about that, Joel. <laughs> yeah. I, I, <laughs> we're, we're out of luck here. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, when you're not mad and you're not yelling at them because they're not <laughs> listening or they're causing trouble, um, you know, when you're sitting down and you're playing with them, um, I would say a few things are as rewarding as, uh, you know, like, for example, teaching your kids something is always really cool or showing them because they're so they're like little curiosity machines. They mm-hmm. don't know anything about anything. Mm-hmm. And they sit down, they're like, what's this? What's that? What's this? And you sit down, you explain and, or they'll see something. They'll be like, Oh, what's that thing? You'd be like, Oh, that's Egypt. Oh, what's Egypt? And you start and you open up some books and you go through it. And two hours later, you're like, wow, you know, you just spent all this time. So yeah, you know, you definitely get into some sort of, you know, deep zone and it's a, it's a euphoric thing, you know, because you have obviously unconditional love for your kids, which, uh, you know, hopefully at some point is reciprocated back <laughs> un- unselfishly. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, you know how, how that works. But, um, yeah, you know, definitely. I mean, it, it, spending time with your children and uh, do, doing things together that are cool, like even just like watching your kids uh, draw or do art, for example. Like my girls, they love to draw. They're mm. they're really really good at it too. And I know every parent says that, and, and then every parent justifies it. But uh, <laughs> you know, they like took some classes in Moscow, and they came back, and you know, everybody else at daycare, their stuff looks like a scribble. And you know, then when I go look at the modern art section, and I look at what my three year old does, and I'm like, y- you could be on the wall. So. Well. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That sounds like a but, parent. 
Yeah, but there's the there's the proficiency thing though. Is that they got an added education, so they've gotten better. Yeah. So you you what I'm saying, I guess, is you watch them you watch them do that, and they have so much enthusiasm, and um, you know, you definitely enjoy sitting there, and you know, even though you're not doing anything and occupying your mind, you're just kind of like in the zone, and you know, you're enjoying it through them finding it and discovering it and experiencing it. Can we go back to Guitar Pro for one second? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I need to say what I think. (laughs) I think it fucking sucks for writing um i think it's great for documenting mm-hmm. and people should document their riffs but man i have dealt with the the devolution of writers i guess going from playing writing in their heads or on their instruments to coming in never having played their music and only mm. in guitar pro and it does not make the music better. It makes it awkward, formulaic in a weird way, and not necessarily transferable to the instruments they're writing for. And I, I just think it's shitty. So, I, I, but, but don't you think this is like the thing I kind of get into is like the head in the heart is that they're doing too much head with that and they're not yes. feeling and expressing. Like, it's just that thing. It's like every, I, I work in so many different genres. And, like, one of the reasons, like, I had to, like, say this was, like, man, like, even if the band only has, like, 400 people who will go to their show across America, there's a big difference between that and the one that they can't get their significant others to go to. And all those people are the people who sit there in the Guitar Pro and write something that they think is going to impress people instead of expressing an emotion and thinking about a tone they want to evoke and figuring that out. It's just like, (laughs) and like reiterating upon that, like the biggest difference is also like the thing of like, somebody actually writes a cool riff and like all these like cool things and the music sounds awesome. Like I've had it like three times this year of like a band walks in and I hit play on the song and I'm like, Dude, these lyrics are about your father shooting himself and finding him. Why is this song so fucking happy? Oh, it was the last one they wrote. <laughs> and this is why I put my lyrics to it. I'm like, what the fuck are you on? One of the things I always used to hate is a band would come in, you know, their last record would be like really good. And they would walk into the studio and I'd be like, so, you know, how's the new record, guys? What does it sound like? And they'd be like, oh, dude, it's sick, dude. It's so technical. And then I'm like, in the back of my head, I'm like, shit, the record's <laughs> going to be garbage. And then they bring the songs in and I just like, yeah, guys, these are great. It's all, It's got 16 more chugs in this riff, but the riff still sucks. No. <laughs> oh. Yeah. I mean, it's just that thing. And it's so much easier to be technical than it is emotional, especially for all these repressed male energies like I'm I make the joke about it man it's like you know I'm that guy in every relationship is like you don't express yourself or your emotions and it's like oh once I like got that in music I'm like oh it also makes all of life easier to go like okay emotions are okay emo is okay <laughs> let's 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 do this thing let's say how we feel and push it out into the world and ah oh, then I feel so much calmer this is good instead well, of just like drawing lines in a screen the thing is that even if it's one emotion and say, let's just say anger, like, mm-hmm. the, or like, if we're talking about metal, let's just say the emotion of wanting to smash stuff or whatever, or <laughs> whatever, right? I know that there's a lot more emotions that go into the genre, but let's just mm-hmm. say, for the sake of argument, that we're talking about a band that evokes one emotion, which is, ah, oh, you know, <laughs> but like, but like, by, by like a, a beast. Even that, you need to, you need to actually evoke that shit to get a crowd to move, mm-hmm. to get people to 
speed down the highway listening to it and blasting it they need to be feeling that emotion whether even if it's just rage like uh the first slipknot record or whatever oh yeah that still needs to be communicated again even if it's what some people will call a base level emotion so i just wanted to say that so mm-hmm. people didn't think that by emotion you just mean like the emo genre no 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 no, no. like it means any any style of music is conveying some sort of an emotion. Yes, and I think that that gets lost on a lot of people is that they, like, I, I can remember, like, uh, that first big Unearth record, and it's like, I was, like, doing a record with the band, and it's like, all they're doing is sitting there and figuring out how they could change the riffs on it enough that it didn't sound just like Unearth. And I'm like, that is not an emotion. Like, <laughs> like you want to know why it still feels terrible? Because that's not an emotional expression. And then you're just putting whatever fucking lyric on top of it instead of saying, oh, you know, this song sounds like the way I felt one time. It's like, that's what I see time and time again has made the best music. Oh, so you mean bands that were copying on Earth? Well, yeah, they're copying it. And then they're not like, you know what the really the thing I always, like I said in the book is like the emotional check is like, do you have a reaction? Like if you're the singer, hear that song. And then, like, how does that song make you feel? And then figure out, like, what you have to say on a subject that does that, maybe. And then, like, instead of just going, hmm, well, I heard Death Cab for Cutie the other day, and he did phrasing like this. Maybe I'll do this. It's like so much of creativity. (laughs) If you want to make a Reese's peanut butter cup, you can do the idea sex thing of just here's two things mashed together. But that doesn't make an emotion in music, and that's what I think a lot of people get really wrong. Kind This... And I know that there's some great ones out there, but this is kind of why I hate concept albums. <laughs> it's very hard to make them the right emotion. I think you're 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 dead on with that. Yeah, I mean, like if we're going to talk about Dark Side of the Moon, mm-hmm. okay, that's yeah. phenomenal. But uh, that's like high art, basically. Yeah. So you didn't like V by Symphony X? In <laughs> I've never heard V by Symphony X, okay. but. I mean, I like that. By, <laughs> and Symphony X is considered one of the best bands in their genre. So, but I'm not talking about like the very best examples ever. Mm. So, like V for V, I'm sure for that genre is equivalent to you know best kind of stuff. Dark Side of the Moon is you know considered one of the greatest records of all time, and you know I would say is like Beethoven level for rock, stuff for classic rock. So. Let's forget those guys. Let's forget the geniuses. Statistical um, outliers yes, gone. Yes, exactly. And let's start talking about normal people. I've had to record lots of concept records where it's like they're trying to fit a square peg into a round hole because they decide on this concept ahead of time and it doesn't resonate a emotionally with the music mm-hmm. at all so they have these lyrics that don't fit the sounds and then they might have some really really cool music and then they'll they won't just run with that and then try to come up with the best lyrics to take that song to the next level they'll 
try to work that into the concept and thereby kind of fuck everything up. I think this is uh, one thing that we've all felt uh, in our lives. We've all sat through those records. But I, I think what's interesting for the producers out there with that is like also like that is the thing with why you need to be diverse and like one of the things I like what you guys do and like I, you know it's like I'm way way past the years where I need to be putting in the learning time if you take learning as like a educational thing like they do in school but like I love watching the on the mix because I learn other people's tools for how to get an emotion across like when I watch some of them I'm like oh you know what's funny is like so, like, the worst thing so many producers do is just go, I'm going to make this record as loud as possible. And that's the most common trajectory of people who get into heavy music is then they get the Death Cab for Cutie Band or their friend doing acoustic, and they're just, like, loud. And it's like, dude, that song is so vulnerable and soft and soft-spoken, and you're killing it with just brightness. Like, it's a metal record. And it's like, you have to learn how to accentuate those emotions and, fo- and make reactions from what you hear that are not just, this is how I do things. And I think that's one of the things that's like really awesome with what you guys do is you're showing how people react and make decisions. You know, I, I, th- this made me think of a very interesting, well, not interesting, just something cool that I experienced like 20 years ago. Mm. I used to be a huge Mr. Bungle fan. Same. And you know how they broke up and then got back together, right? Mm-hmm. So yes. they got back together for California album and did like a bunch of tours. And so when they got back together, that was a really big deal for those of us who hadn't seen them. And so for I lived in Boston at the time, and so they played all around. They play they played New York, they played Boston, they played Hartford, and I kind of wanted to get to all of those. And I went to the Hartford show and I miscalculated and ended up there like 3 hours early. And so I went into the club, and they were about to do their sound check. And they were opening that tour with What the World Needs Now, (laughs) a a cover of that song. Mm -hmm. And so you think Mr. Bungle, crazy band, not, I mean, not known for, like, lighter music or anything. (laughs) No. But, But they started with that, and after about one minute into them playing it, Mike Patton stopped the sound check and railed the sound guy and was like, this is supposed to be subtle and nuanced. And I'm not hearing either of those things <laughs> in, uh, in how this sounds. So let's, uh, let's do it again. I just thought that was interesting. Wow. Um, but he, get, you know, what's funny is he's another one, though. Everybody thinks of, like, his technical prowess. I'm actually doing a record for him right now for his label, and um, I'm mixing it. And it's like he gets the emotion and music on levels that are stunning. Like, it was the same thing um, being around at the end of that record he did with Dillinger Escape Plan. It's like people think it's all just like him being like, doing weird sounds. It's like, no, he's making an emotional picture. That he feels. I mean, he's a weird guy, so he feels different things, but that's what he's doing. <laughs> I didn't know you worked with him. That's pretty cool. I, I wouldn't call myself a fanboy, but definitely a fan. I, I, I mean, uh, I embarrassed myself the first time I met him and told him, like, uh, Video Music Awards, Plague Epic, you shaved the side of your head like the famous Skrillex thing. He did that back then. Yep. And uh, I did that, like, five minutes at the commercial break. Once he was done, I'm like, there it is, done. And uh, totally embarrassed myself by telling him that. He's like, wow, you're a fucking dork. <laughs> 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 that's that's actually part of the reason that I became a fan of his was because he uh, he 
he talked to his fans like that. Yeah, it's, it's I, impressive. I enjoyed it. Yeah, so back to you talked about head versus heart. Yes. And one thing that I've noticed people have a hard time with is once they do write, they start to overanalyze everything mm-hmm. and just start to think too much about it and then tweak and tweak and tweak or just don't do anything. And I call that analysis paralysis. But yes. Do you, I, I know that that's a pretty common term for it. Um, do you have any techniques that you use to get around that? Yeah, so part of the book I talk about that like objectivity is basically a race we're all running. Like Greg Wells has this really good quote. He's like, you know, he produced Adele and Katy Perry. Uh, that the hardest part of music is that we can never hear it the way a listener would the first time. So one of the big points of the book, obviously, is like you have to make the music you want to hear because thinking you're making music that other pe- that other people are going to like is always a failed road because you're just guessing. So because of that, then you have this problem is that you have infinite choices, all these considerations. And when I started framing, so this is like one of the biggest things I did post learning stuff in the book starting about like three, four years ago now, is instead of like allowing people to just go into these like things of like, let's wait for the synth patch that sounds cool and scroll through a thousand presets. It's like, let's have an emotional discussion about what this brings to the song. Are we trying to make the song happier? Are we trying to make it sadder? Are we trying to make it more ominous? Like, what can we do? Like, um, there's a great line from Justin Meldal Johnson about producing that MA3 record, which I think is one of the most emotionally interesting records of recent years, is like that they would literally have a, a, pay, a oak tag sketch of like touch tones, words, pictures from movies, all about what they were trying to create. Grounding a song in what that emotion is makes such a huge difference in the analysis process because you can easily dismiss what it is. And it's like that same thing we're always doing. Like, I know when you and I have conversations, like we try to re-engineer things. It's actually one of the favorite things I learned from Finn McKenty doing the Creative Live is like going backwards and figuring out the very bones of something. And it's the same thing with music and emotion is that like people get too heady about this of like, what's complicated? Well, complicated is not an emotion. What's this? Like, even, you know, I've, I've been in the studio with Dillinger Escape Plan. They're not going, what's complicated? He's doing emotions. And it's like that same kind of thing is like, I think so many people are having the wrong conversation when they're having that analysis paralysis. Now, with that said, trying to find the kick that makes the dance song pump the most and you have a vengeance sample pack, there's still about... 300 options if you have the complete pack and that's enough for analysis paralysis and I think there's that, <laughs> that thing of, true. I try to do cycled whittling down with big decisions so I'm very big on um, that you should not be trying to do everything one day I think some of the studio structure that our lives are in is very broken I try to really do um, if I have to work a 16 hour day which I do a lot in the studio I try to do three different projects working on them three different days and do three half days because I think if you whittle down a lot of things and go into different modes that works better for my brain but so I'm doing that dance track let's say the kick drums we're trying to choose the kicks I choose first maybe my 20 favorite kicks put them up in the song and then if we're still having trouble I get it down to five and then I get it down to one the next day it's like it's finding how you whittle that down in a process that works for you. Just as you were talking about with like what worked for you with practicing, it's like you got to observe what your mind does because all our minds organize different. But I do think generally that helps a lot with analysis paralysis is whittling in phases 
even if it's not days, it's like coming back to it, whittle down some more. Come back to it, whittle down some more. And it sounds like by pinning down the emotion, you're doing something that I do in business stuff all the time, which is to try to keep things outcome oriented mm-hmm. rather than rather than uh, just instead of to do lists. I like to think of outcomes because because we like to eighty twenty things a lot mm-hmm. and. When you make a to-do list, uh, you can get wrapped up in minutia. But if you keep to outcome-based thinking, you can eliminate lots of the bullshit that you might just add on because to-do lists are fun to make. <laughs> but uh, if you keep it to if you keep it to focusing on the emotion that you're evoking, mm-hmm. it's kind of like you're already determining the outcome of the song right there. So you can eliminate parts or ideas that don't fit that yeah and like you know there's like that funny concept i talk about this a lot in bars when i'm really drunk uh but like (laughs) we've never had more access to instruments than we do now everybody's computer comes preloaded so you could make a flaming lips type record like with every instrument but then you notice no one's making music like that like it's so rare anybody does that and it's because limitations are good for creativity having a finite emotional palette within your thing actually helps you be more creative and they've showed time and time like they say like Johnny Ive when he's designed Apple like one of the biggest things he does is he takes away tools from people interesting yep that makes perfect sense I, I definitely yeah, I very th- heavily agree with that you've noticed that Joel absolutely I mean anytime you have too many yeah you just you need to because like I said sometimes that limitation forces pressure it's like I'll equate it to writing pop songs mm-hmm. <laughs> an interesting topic after reading your book <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah I mean I love pop but, I've, but. I love writing pop songs and things mm-hmm. like that. I, I just don't do it that much anymore because um, I'm busy doing this stuff. So, but when I used to do it a lot, what I always liked about pop, you know, as we said earlier, you know, like writing the really technical stuff in a way is almost easy because there's no rules or no direction. It's just like, oh, this riff is cool and technical. Let's just slap it together. Oh, can't can't uh, get this next riff to go. Oh, we'll just, just change times and just do a stupid drum fill. And, you know, then we'll go into this riff because it, it's really sick and it should be in the song, even though it completely doesn't fit. So, you know, when you're writing music like that, that's supposed to be really technical and crazy. It's, it's a lot easier. But when you're in pop, you're like, okay. I've got X amount of chord rules I can use. We mm-hmm. got to get something that's amazing. We have to talk about something that's going to resonate with people. Like, what are what are we feeling today? Like, what kind of emotion are we in? Like, you know, and you, you're playing in like a, this little teeny box, but it's infinitely large, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And that pressure of having to know that you're playing in that box inspires a lot of crazy creativity that you wouldn't normally think of. It's kind of like I'll equate it to when I used to teach guitar many, many years ago. I would sit down and explain to people how chord movement affects, you know, um, emotion and soloing and things like that. Like you can sit there and you can solo over just like an, uh, okay, E standard tuning. Sorry. I know this is, this is like 2002. Okay. So <laughs> give me some slack. I know, I know now it would be like droppy, but E standard tuning, you know, we can sit there in E minor and I can just play like a Slayer open riff and the chords never change. And no matter what note you play on the guitar, the solo is always going to kind of suck. But as soon as I go into like a four five, six progression or something that's got some good core movement, if you literally sit down 
down and we say, okay, eliminate all notes. The only thing you can do is rhythm. Now make a great solo using just one note, 12th fret, you know, that high E and just making rhythm and those limitations, you'd be surprised how creative you get when you have something so small and easy to work with and you take out all of the options. And it was always interesting as an exercise for students where I'd be like, okay, we're going to take this scale, but we're going to eliminate all the notes. You get two notes and you can only use these two notes in rhythm. Now you have to make a great solo for this riff go. And we would practice doing that. And I was always impressed, like having those constraints, like I'm going to do something in this little box. And it seems constricting at first, but as soon as you get into it, like the brain accepts the challenge and goes into that flow state again, like we were talking yes. about. And then you realize that that box is infinitely expansive. So I always liked writing stuff like pop songs because it was like a challenge, like how, how crazy and cool and awesome can I do in this teeny little, supposedly teeny little box with all these constraints. And to take it back to science, uh, that is proven that in that Stealing Fire book, uh, he talks about the limitations enhanced flow states. Well, there you go. Science, bitch. <laughs> so, can you, Hashtag Can science. you talk us through uh, some of the higher level points uh, surrounding, for instance, stuffing yourself with inspiration like Ray Bradbury versus fasting or starving yourself of it? Yes. Like Grimes? So it's interesting because like, when we talk about inspiration, like there, you, you can see so many examples and you can extract so many things if you just use anecdotal evidence of like, my friend does this. I read that this guy does this slash does this I saw in a interview. But there's like really truth to it is that like inspiration is really research. And just as you could not write a paper in school without reading the research, without your teacher going, you didn't read this, you have to listen to a certain amount of music and take it in. But that doesn't mean that everybody's in that mode at all times. So Grimes, my friend Ezra from Morning Glory, and I all do the same thing. Is that like when we go to start to really do the, the bare bones skeletons of uh, our work is that we want to not have any inspiration come in. Because then we're like thinking about what was last emotionally resonant to us. So like Ezra, when I work with him, he actually lives at my studio when we work. And he will not listen to anything but, like, he wants to leave the room if I put on a guitar-toned AV. And it's so that he stays away from that when he's trying to do the big, broad strokes of his work. And I think it's a thing that a lot of people have trouble with. Like, you always hear people like, oh, well, now my stuff sounds too much like this because I've been listening to this, like... um I, you know, the guy I'm working with uh, last week, he's been listening to the uh, guy you had on uh, Volumes, and he keeps being like, oh, it sounds too much like Volumes. I'm like, I don't want to hear it because I don't want to know that. I want to just judge if it sounds good. But then play it for me afterwards, and we'll see if uh, I think you're going too much like that. And but So what the Ray Bradbury quote is about that you need to stuff yourself full, full of it. But the thing that Ray Bradbury says that I think a lot of people don't take in is, too, is there's another side of inspiration, which is that, like, movies can be really inspiring books like getting your brain excited of the possibility of possibility is so much of what this is so like even if you're not going to listen to music all day uh, for a little while while you try to write your so present songs it's like i mean for me like i go see a great movie and like all i want to do is create and because it just like it sparks me like i went and saw lcd sound system play in a 1800 seat venue last night like the last time they played new york was madison square garden and it was so inspiring it was one of the best shows and all i want to do all day today is like make cool things because it pushes it out of you so there's 
a lot of things where people like justify their not listening to music or staying comfortable. Like I talk about music as a diet a lot that like you, you know, if you're trying to figure out cool percussion parts, it might be good to listen to the cure right now. It's like, if you're instead of like just that, your favorite band, local band who doesn't have that good of ideas, but feels good listening to, it's like, you have to see inspiration as a diet and that you're finding emotional tools to reference on a regular basis. Well, something interesting I noticed in my life or my opinion on a lot of this of the feeding yourself with with it is that you have to always be doing it, in my opinion, but you need to be mindful of what you're taking in. And when I went to Berkeley in Boston, one of the complaints that a lot of people had about the Berkeley students was that they all kind of sounded the same. Mm. And for the most part, I noticed that too. Huh. And it was, and I know why it was. I mean, with some exceptions, of course, but because they're all learning the same thing mm. all day, every day. They're learning the same songs, the same exercises, the same tune, the same everything. And lots of times, it's their first time learning certain genres. So their only knowledge of, say, jazz is what they learned in school. And it's the same thing as 20 other people in their class who never listened to jazz before. Mm -hmm. So that influence in their playing is identical mm -hmm. to everybody else who had that same experience. And I started to notice that when I went and that's when I stopped going to those classes because I didn't want that to come out in my playing or my writing because I feel like what you what you bring in is going to filter through you and come back out somehow. Yes. And I didn't want I didn't want that sound coming through me. I didn't want blues coming through me. I didn't want jazz coming through me. And I certainly did not want elevator music <laughs> com, com, coming, coming out the other end. And so I limited what I was being inspired by or, or what I was taking into stuff that I wanted to be inspired by, if that makes sense. I think that there's like the opposite side of that is like, I started listening to pop music because I wanted my vocal production to get tighter. And I grew up on 80s and 90s punk. Like, those performances are fucking terrible. Whereas, like, you grow up on, like, tech metal, you're, like, already at an advantage. Like, you're always hearing things that are pretty on time, pretty in tune. I mean, some people's vocal tone leaves a lot to be desired. But, like, you're hearing things of a greater technical accuracy and I was noticing, like, I had to up my standards and so I had to change my diet to get better standards. So... Let's talk about standards because uh, you you talk about that a lot. Um, mm -hmm. Like for instance, with Johnny Cash's cover of "Hurt," yes, you said that it wouldn't be better without the breaths between the lines, or "Twist and Shout" by the Beatles wouldn't be better if John Lennon hadn't been singing all day, mm -hmm. leading to a raspy voice. And uh, I think it's important to set standards, but I want to know your your takes on standards because I'm sure you've noticed that a lot of modern production can be quite sterile. I, I mean, this is the longest discussion. I think like we're all in the same age area where like we're the kind of bridge generation between like a lot of people who just like really loose records and we're the ones who are like, no, I'll take it pretty tight, but like too tight's a little much. And there's just this thing of like, it. 
I mean, it goes back to that Daniel Levitin study. It's like when you put everything on the grid, people don't feel anything. And standards are everything. Like even just like the thing of like, I mean, all I, I've heard you guys talk about, so I know you know my pain with this, but like we all know the guitarist who you get a really good emotional take, but then they don't feel like their finger moved properly during the take, and they want to do it again <laughs> until they suck the life out of it. And it's like they just like they yes. know their form and they treat it like gymnastics. Standards need to be the emotion and judging like when it feels, not when it's on the grid and everything looks right. Like, you know, I've been really lucky that I've gotten to work with a lot of my favorite bands. And if there's one thing I can tell you, it's like when I even like, you know, I got to do um, I've done archival work for the Misfits, uh, the Ramones and the Cure. And I've gotten to look at what those records look like at a computer. And it's, let me tell you, it's not near a grid. And there's a reason for that stuff. And it's the same goes whether you like you want to get into the technical stuff. I can remember, I mean, I always tell the story. Like the first night before I worked with Dillinger, I didn't sleep. Because I'm like, I'm like a punk kid. Like, I'm like, I, I'm not a, a person. And like, you got to realize, I grew up with those guys. So it's not even like I'm coming to this like, oh, God, these guys are gods. Like, you know, like I knew Ben when he looked like a piece of mall metal trash when he was young. It's like, <laughs> you know, like these are not people I'm hiding. I'm hi I was scared because they're so much better than me. And then you realize like, no, it's just feel like to Chris Penny playing to the click track is going to have push and pull. That feels good. You don't just line it up. You listen to it. You feel it. And he already has sons. So you barely need to do anything anyway. And like, that's the thing you learn over and over and over again is like, Yes, there are some records that are fully on the grid that can sometimes feel good, and that works for certain people's things. But the vast majority of this is like developing a standard of emotion, not a standard of, you know, we all have had that guy who's like, that's a little late. It's like, well, yes, the bass playing a little late sometimes sounds a little bigger. And for a slow, sludgy song, it makes it sound even huger. Well, I shifted up 30 milliseconds onto the thing, and it's like, oh, yeah, well, there, there's the lack of emotion that you were looking for. Thank you so much. <laughs> I definitely have noticed it. And with some of the best artists I've worked with, the one thing that has been, I guess we didn't talk about it, but they relied on me to keep the standards up for the recording technical mm -hmm. end of it, but uh, they weren't happy until the emotion was right. And those were the best records I was involved with. So I think you're absolutely right about it, that there need to be emotional standards. Like, do you feel, do you feel it or mm -hmm. not? And it's that simple. And you can't, you can't really teach it either. That's why it might be a little elusive to some people. Yeah. I, I mean, I think the way you teach it is by zoning in on it and noticing what you like. Uh, they call it in creative studies a uh, trained noticing um, that you're trying to find correlations. Like last night, like I went out with this girl to see LCD sound system, and it's like she's a good musician, and like we noticed. Like I hate improvisation. She loves it, but when LCD does it, it does it right. And so, like, I'm writing down all the the ways they're using improvisation. I mean, like, oh, this is how a band can do it and actually pull it off. Because, like, dude, it's stunning when a band can that has a four minute song can jam for three minutes and the uh, bar is empty in the back. Like, that's a rare thing. 
it, th that actually is a very rare thing. And so I'm like, okay, so what is it? Okay, so what, what I noticed was, was like all the improvisations were enhancing the emotion that was already there in the pre-recorded thing. Like they're taking it to a more intense place and that's what made people want to stay. Yeah. that's That's got to be pretty cool because I fucking hate improvisation too. <laughs> same. same. Uh, yeah. I, I, think, I think I know from listening to you guys enough that all three of us are very compositional people who like yes. a well composition thing not a fucking happy accident that just happened to jam out real cool dude and it's like dude, I don't fuck with that. There's nothing worse than metal dudes jamming. <laughs> oh my percent, thousand percent. <laughs> Manners. That is a fact to be etched into stone and forever passed on to generations. Yeah, metal <laughs> people should not jam. Just don't do it. I think there's an interesting thing that I see with like a lot of the stuff you guys talk about too is that there is now science in this. Like for so long, we thought the brainstorming session was God's gift to everything, and that started in the '50s when the guy who Don Draper was based on wrote this book about it, and um, he actually wrote three books about it. And every nerd read it and decided like. You need to jam and you need to brainstorm. You need to have these mind jams. And now what we're, we really see is, um, so Cal Newport talks about this in this book called Deep Work, where what you really want is this hub and spoke method where you go work alone, then you bring your group work to the group to get further inspiration and criticism. And the group will tell you either one, this is not right, or two, they'll be like, hey, have you heard this? Maybe you should add this to this. And that's how things improve. But really, we do our best creative work in solitude where we return to people with feedback and like that's you know like I talk about it in the book like that like you know Thrice Vampire Weekend and all these bands like I actually interviewed this band who I think made a great record called um, Publicist UK on Relapse uh, they did their record without ever having met and it was what all else I thought interesting is you mentioned MIT in that how they yes. do that yeah so MIT Building 20 which is one of the most creative places it's Noam Chomsky who everybody considers the greatest political nerd of linguistics they built the place around that uh, idea of the hub and spoke method that's where Cal Newport kind of took it from interesting yep so I mean literally you can get better creative results by not jamming I, it's fine to jam after somebody has the initial idea, but I'm sure you guys have seen this. Like most great bands, it's usually somebody who sits alone, figures something out, yeah. and then brings it to everybody. Instead of just being like, well, I guess we should play a riff. And, you know, fart the, around the for four jam hours. Room, the, the practice room environment is not conducive to communicating well or creativity, in my opinion. Yes. And the other thing, is too, is that, like, uh, one of the things I say, I think I even said it on a blog I did for URM, is that most people don't also know the rules of that, that, like, for one, you should first not critique anything and see where it goes. Two, you don't, you're never allowed to tell somebody their idea is dumb and things like that. But then three, after you've decided, okay, we pursue this idea, that anybody can say any comment. That, none of that... Don't tell me how to play my instrument. Don't don't tell you tell yours. Like that's the fastest way to a music that no one ever wants to hear. God, that stresses <laughs> me out just thinking back to that. <laughs> the worst. God. The worst. So one more thing I wanted to talk about, which I think is a message again that appeals to the musicians and producers in the audience, is the concept of shoving twenty pounds of crap into a ten pound <laughs> bag. And can you talk a little bit about the idea of trying to cram too much ear-grabbing information into a song? And I would call it dick moves. Ah, I like that. <laughs> my, I like band, well my band used to call those uh, dick moves when we would just try to throw the ear too much ear candy in. I, I think 
when you break down any genre of music, you start to realize there's only so much they could take. Like I even you know like uh, you brought up that first Slipknot record. Like I think that's one of the few records that like kind of sometimes like it's always at the brim of there being too much. And Iowa too. And there's this thing that like rhythm, bass, accompaniment, company you being guitar synths in most things, whatever's playing the chords, and a melody and like it is so hard to get more than two melodies. Like, I I challenge people all the time. Like, I'm like, okay, show me a song that has three melodies going at once that you think is really well done. And I I think of all the times I've challenged musicians to do it, like somebody came back with one a month later to be like, ha ha ha, I got you. It's just I found like, the one. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I found the exception to the rule. Wow, it's a rule. It has an exception. Thank you. People do not think about, like, um, one of the best observations is that every really great band, we're not just talking about, like, the band that made one, two cool records, bands that stand the test of time, there is usually a member who just stays the fuck out of the way the whole time. Like, even, like, Radiohead's drummer did nothing interesting for so many records. Like, it got interesting around Hail to the Thief, but, like, Tim and the bassist largely are like, those guys are pretty crazy, we're just gonna hang back here and serve them. And, like... People think of it as like, oh, wow, no, that's so wild. It's like even the songs where the drums are wild, then you're like, oh, look, well, the guitars are staying out of the way for that point or whatever. And it's like there is such a balance of knowing like to turn and say, you know, somebody needs to get the fuck out of the way right now. And, man, it's so hard to figure out who's going to do that because usually if everybody can play well, there's a lot of ego in the room and learning that I think like you really have to go and do that trained noticing thing of like, Listen back and say, really, is this what you actually like? You like when everybody's vying for the attention. Because I don't, like, uh, you know, it's like that, an exercise I do a lot is like when the drummer is doing a certain thing, and I'm like, tell me your three favorite drummers. I'm like, cool, none of them do that, so why are you doing that? <laughs> well, and, you know, it's fun, it's interesting you say that, because I was immediately thinking, even in the proggiest of music, if mm -hmm. you, and technical music, if you listen to the the top bands in that genre of like notes mm -hmm. upon notes, like a dream theater or something, yeah, yeah. their shit is still arranged super well to where they're not stepping all over each other. And when it's time for the guitar solo, they support the guitar solo. Yeah. And I actually, that's a great example because there's very few bands that if you talk about them on a surface level, people are like, Oh, dream theater is so indulgent. It's like dream theater is really fucking calculated. And that calculation is knowing that that's staying out of the way. And, like, the other thing I just noticed, too, is, like, when you see who gets hired for sessions all the time, it's the people who don't put their ego, like, I, honestly, I used to have one of my favorite drummers of all time, guy I grew up playing, he's played in all these huge bands, he used to be my session drummer, he, he was eager to do it, we're good buds, I couldn't have him do it, because every time somebody tried to change something, he'd be like, dude, you don't know what you're talking about, and do that whole thing, <laughs> and it's like... Everybody people like, they'll always tell you that play consistently in great bands that they do. It's like they know when to get in the way and they know when to stay out of the way. And that is the most crucial skill there is in writing good songs. Absolutely. Well, everybody, go pick up Processing Creativity, the tools, practices, and habits used to make music you're happy with by Mr. Jesse Cannon. Where can they pick it up? Uh, ProcessingCreativityBook.com has all the links for everything. By the time this is out, the audiobook will be out too after uh, 
Audible stops uh, telling me my cover is too weird. Um, so, <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, that place has all the links. You're gonna you're doing an Audible version. I did an Audible version, and they uh, they've given me a lot of shit about the the copyright infringement on the cover because I intentionally took a pick to fight with copyright. But that's a, probably another story for another time. I love Audible. <laughs> yeah, I, same. Same. I I consume so many books by listening to them, so. That's just great to hear that there will be a version. Awesome, yeah. I, I it's definitely the way I read the most. Yeah, same here. And uh, guys, uh, in the crowd, if you look at the show notes for this episode on our website, all the links to Jesse's books, podcasts, studio, blogs, like all that, are in the show notes. So. There's a lot of stuff. <laughs> You're a one prolific dude, man. Oh, I appreciate that. Yeah, got, got to stay busy. We all, all three of us do. Nah, yeah. we're all slackers. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like one. Um, well, that's what keeps that, us going. <laughs> yeah, it, it's. Uh, I have imposter syndrome, so like mm-hmm. I definitely feel like a slacker. But whenever I go back over the year and I look at how much got done, I'm like, nah. I'm just insane. We'll have to talk. Yeah, so, we'll have to talk sometime about the imposter syndrome thing. I actually got uh, free therapy for it one night in a bar from a therapist who specializes in it, and it was so interesting. Maybe, huh. maybe I'll come on Noise Creators and yeah. talk about imposter syndrome. That, that, that's what we should do, actually. Okay. Is that what it's officially called? Because I just call it like mental disorder. <laughs> no, it's called no, it's called imposter syndrome. Yeah. Ah, that's what it's called. I'll have to look that up because I've been suffering from that for a very long time. It's very common among high achievers and creative people. It's, um, it's a, it, no wonder well, I can't relax on the weekend. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, it's super common. Like, it's uh, the the feeling that people are going to find out that you're faking it or that you're not as good as they think you are. Like that's. Oh, a, no, I don't have that. I, I'm associating <laughs> oh, with Oh, you the know guilt. you're awesome. <laughs> no, 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 no. I don't mean it like that. I mean it like um, mm-hmm. when, I, when I don't do something, I feel like I should be doing something. Like I uh, feel the urgency of the moment, the external pressure. Like there's always, I don't know, like if I'm sitting around, I'm thinking about like, here's what I should be doing right now and I'm not, so I, I don't know. Terrible. I don't know if that's imposter syndrome. Okay. Impo- yeah, that's, that's imposter not. Syn- imposter yeah. syndrome is when you literally don't feel like you're, uh, like you get a gig and you don't think you're good enough for the gig. It's like a self-doubt kind of thing. Yes. Kind of. Yes. It, it usually usually stemming from uh, something in your past where, like, so for me, mine all stems because I dropped out of high school. And yeah. how many people would like... Damn, you are one educated high school dropout. <laughs> Holy shit. I mean, I also dropped out of high school because I, I worked at... Um, WFMU, which is the top freeform radio station, and one day they're like, uh, "So Gaster Del Sol's playing," and my scouts counselors like, "You don't go to that, you uh, get kicked out of high school." I'm like, "I'm gonna go engineer the band." So, <laughs> I got, you know, I did well in my GD. That was that. But I always feel like a thing because I hang out with Harvard graduates, and like, you know, my best friend won a Pulitzer Prize. It's like I feel like a fucking moron sometimes from that. But. You're obviously not, because you're defined by the people you spend the most time with. Uh, yeah, you, you know, the, the, you know what's funny? I remember you guys talking about that on the Brian Hood episode, and, you know, there's a thing in the book that I'm starting to not believe that one. I think the internet's a hack, and I think what you guys do is a hack for that. 
is that like when you get to hear all these amazing brains in your ears all day, you can hack that you're the product of the five people you spend the most time with. Oh, well, yeah, I agree with that. However, you can hack it, but I do think that it's, it's very true. That doesn't mean it's not hackable, but I definitely think it's true. Yes. Like, and I've noticed it in my life when I'm around more negative people who don't believe in themselves or think big, I start to think less big. And, uh, Agreed. But for in- or what I got with Joey and Joel as partners, I felt at home because they think as big as I do and uh, things moved quickly and I kind of started to feel myself again. So like, and it's, it, I feel like uh, that, I feel like there's a lot of truth to it, but I do agree that even if you are surrounded by shitheads, um, you can hack it by, <laughs> you can hack it by uh, taking in the right information and replacing them. But that yep. we should talk about on Noise Creators. <laughs> yes. Okay. We're, we're, we're going to do that. <laughs> All right. Cool. All right. Excellent. Well, dude, thank thanks you so much for yeah, coming my, my pleasure. That was really fun. The Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast is brought to you by Stam Audio. Stam Audio creates zero compromise recording gear that is light on the wallet. Only the best components are used, and each one goes through a rigorous testing process with one thing in mind, getting the best sound possible. Go to stamaudio.com for more info. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit urm.academy slash podcast and subscribe today.